Hi, I'm Frank. I don't like change. And I just saw a billboard for this new BJ's Wholesale Club talking about how you could pay as little as two cents a gallon for gas. Look, when gas prices are this low, we can't complain about gas prices being too high. No, sir. I wouldn't join BJ's Wholesale Club. Hey, thanks, Frank. But if you do want to sign up now to get a $40 BJ's digital gift card, join the new BJ's Wholesale Club, opening soon in South Fayette. Visit BJ's.com slash South Fayette or the BJ's Membership Center at Newbury Market. Offer valid for a limited time. Addiction is a disease that impacts all of us. Whether you, your neighbor, friend, or family member is struggling, everyone feels the pain of addiction. Recovery Centers of America, Monroeville, wants you to know that addiction treatment works and recovery is possible. Call 1-888-RECOVERY-NOW for help for yourself or a loved one. Recovery Centers of America have helped thousands of patients across the United States and here in Western Pennsylvania start a better, healthier way of life through their evidence-based inpatient and outpatient treatment programs. The caring team of physicians and clinicians at Recovery Centers of America see their patients as so much more than their addiction and are deeply committed to providing expert care with heart. Recovery Centers of America knows that every day in active addiction is a day in isolation, which is why they admit new patients 24-7 year-round. Don't wait. Make the call that can change everything. Call 1-888-RECOVERY now. Lesbians are pretty thin on the ground for Gen Z. I have one other lesbian friend, and together we have collected reports of five other lesbians between the U.S. and Canada, of which three are in our generation. I do not know how things were in the olden times for the elder gays, so I admit that a paucity of lesbians may in fact be normal for 20-something gay women in left-coast liberal cities. But I like to imagine there was some Arcadian past where short-haired women in Carhartts could gather in groups greater than two. I have also heard legends of femme lesbians, but as yet have never encountered one. Welcome to the Unspeakable Podcast. I'm your host, Megan Daum. My guest, Katie Herzog, is the first returning guest to this podcast. Katie joined me last fall to talk about Blocked and Reported, the podcast she hosts with fellow journalist Jesse Single. I asked her back because I wanted to talk about an article she published recently called Where Have All the Lesbians Gone? It appeared in the Substack newsletter of journalist Andrew Sullivan. In another era, I think it could have appeared in any number of elite mainstream magazines, but here we are. And it talked about her own identity as a lesbian and a trend she's observed wherein lots of her lesbian friends are now identifying as transgender or non-binary. In this conversation, she talks about how she sees the non-binary identity as a regressive trend because it ultimately puts limits on gender expression, even as it purports to do otherwise. She also talks about the woman who coined the phrase, the future is female, the recent announcement that the actor, once known as Ellen Page, now identifies as male, and, not unrelatedly, her former career as a professional whitewater kayaker. Please note that an extended version of this interview is available for Patreon subscribers. That version includes our discussion of an admittedly unrelated topic, the question of whether to have your dog neutered or spayed. This is a subject that Katie has delved into quite seriously over the last several months as she weighs the health consequences of neutering her own dog. She reports on her findings in her own Substack newsletter, Moose Nuggets, And I know what you may be thinking now, but in all sincerity, we have a serious and balanced discussion about this, and I, for one, learned a lot of new things. So if it interests you, 
please go to the Patreon page at patreon.com slash the unspeakable and you can subscribe and hear it right now. Meanwhile, here's the main part of our conversation. Katie, welcome back to the podcast. Thanks for having me. I guess uh, it goes without saying we're here to uh, talk about uh, something really big in the news. There's been a lot going on, been the election, the pandemic, ongoing unrest. But um, yeah, one of the most uh, pressing topics of the day is uh, something that you've addressed uh, in a recent in a recent piece. Um, and I thought, uh, in addition to you know, talking about what's going on on your podcast, Blocked and Reported, we would just really get down to it and uh, talk about uh, really one of the most overlooked yet urgent issues uh, of our time, which is that uh, we're running out of lesbians. It is true. There is uh, Lesbians are endangered. We might be extinct in the next couple of decades. Who knows? Oh, I, decades. I, I'm thinking like weeks. Yeah, it could be. Uh, the, it could way be weeks. the way it's sounding. I mean, even I, as a as a non lesbian, uh, see this as a as a major major threat and and something that should be addressed. I'm surprised it's actually not on the Biden Harris uh, <laughs> kind of docket of it, uh, things to address. Yes, they're going to address the. They're going to put us on the endangered species list. Oh, they are. Okay. Yes. Yeah, but it's going to be uh, within the first hundred days. <laughs> Um, okay, so you you took this issue on uh, in a recent uh, piece essay reported reported essay I guess we could call it um, it it appeared uh, on Andrew Sullivan's new Substack so why don't you just start off by telling us where the piece appeared and what was the general gist sure so the piece uh, it appeared right after Thanksgiving in Andrew's newsletter I think it's andrewsullivan.substack.com um, this new project that he's working on very successful project from what I hear um, after he was uh, dismissed I think we can say from um, from New York magazine and the piece is about this this trend that I've observed over the past, 10 years, but really has really accelerated over the past maybe four, three or four years. And what's happening, and I have to, I should, I should start this out by saying that there's no clear polling on this and there's no clear data on this. So what, really? I, why not? I know. I, is there, there's no think tank solely devoted to this? There should be. There, this is something that HRC should be, should be getting on, but instead they're, <laughs> they're too busy tracking the number of trans people murdered every year. <laughs> I would think the ACLU or the, yeah. the Southern Poverty Law Center. Exactly. Would, would be good for them. Yeah. Nobody seems to be talking about this except for, <laughs> except for me and a handful of other lesbians. Um, so what's happening is that there has been been this trend away from identifying as a lesbian. And this isn't so I've been observing it like in in uh in earnest for the past 10 years. But this really so I came out as gay in 2001 and or maybe 2002. somewhere in the early 2000s. And even then, there were like a couple of years. It, this is when the L word was starting and there was a couple years where like everybody wanted to be a lesbian. My college friends, all of whom are now married to men, all wanted to be lesbians. We called them lesbians until graduation. Mhm. So Lug, there was like lugs, lugs, right? lugs yeah. That yeah. Was called lug, lesbian yeah. until graduation. And now it's non-binary until graduation, so nug. Well, um, I thought it was tug, but we'll get to that. <laughs> no, it's just nug and tug, the new film starring Scarlett Johansson. <laughs> 
<laughs> so, uh, so even when I was, you know, in my early twenties and identifying as a lesbian, there was a few years right around the time when the L word, when the L word premiered, when it was cool to be a lesbian. And really quickly after that, something changed. And I remember distinctly the first time I heard the term queer used in a non-derogatory sense. And a, I was working at a, at a like very, at, in Portland at a coffee shop and one of my fellow Coworkers, one of my fellow baristas referred to herself as queer, and I had this very visceral reaction. Like, what? It, what? Why would you say that about yourself? What are you doing? And she explained to me that we were reclaiming the term. So this was in maybe 2005, and since then, I don't. I'm sure she doesn't identify as lesbian anymore. But since then, this the, the I would say the vast majority of the the species formerly known as lesbians as homosexual women that I know have. Either they either identify as sort of vaguely queer, or what's happening in, in more recent years is that they're transitioning to male, or they're adopting non-binary pronouns. And it's not just lesbians who are doing this. Like there are there are lots of straight women who now call themselves non-binary, which I find very interesting. Or but they they it, it, we get into such like problems with the straight language. Straight women calling themselves non-binary, right? Because like even saying that, even like calling them straight women, it, some people are going to be offended by that because they're not women; they're non-binary. So maybe I should say females. Right. So, so, so females identify natal females. Natal oh, no, females. Okay. Yeah. Yes. So the like nay women are have stopped identifying as lesbian and they've stopped identifying as women, and I find that really interesting because if there are mass numbers of, of females who no longer want to be women, no longer want to be lesbians, but also no longer want to be women, something is happening. And I think if you were talking to a non-binary person right now, they would say, it's not that I don't want to identify as a woman, it's that I'm not a woman, I'm non-binary. And I think that this is a really interesting cultural phenomenon that we're seeing right now, but it, it is one that is fraught uh, with difficulty because even talking about it, people think that you're trying to erase non-binary identities or trans identities, or you're, um, you know, you're committing an array of hate crimes against these against these other groups. Yes. Okay. So, had you tried to take this on uh, in journalism before and not gotten anywhere? How did it come about that you wrote this particular piece for this particular outlet? Well, so I had written about non-binary identities before. I wrote a piece for The Stranger, Seattle's Alt Weekly, where I used to be a staff writer, um, maybe in 2019 or 2018, I'm not totally sure, about the rise of the non-binary identity and how I see this as a as a regressive trend. And the reason I see it as regressive, and I, and I went into this in the piece that I wrote for Andrew, is because what the non-binary identity says is that the binary exists, right? It presupposes that there are masculine, there's masculine and there's feminine. And if you're somewhere in the middle of those, you're not a woman and you're not a man. And to me, the real progressive position is to say, I'm a woman and I like butch things, or I'm a man and I like pink and ballet, and that doesn't make me not a man, and that doesn't make me a not a woman. It just so to me, this ideology is very, very regressive, and I can see how it would be appealing for the individual. In a lot of ways, for one thing, it makes you sort of special, makes you a little bit different, right? If you go by they them pronouns, it's sort of a you get some oppression points for that, and just some like some special points. And it's also a way of saying, like, I personally reject gender roles. And so because I reject gender roles, I'm not a woman. And what I like to say is I'm a woman and I reject gender roles. That doesn't make me less of a woman because 
womanhood isn't based on the clothes that you wear or the things that you like or even the things that you do. Um, yeah. So so that's sort of my issue with it. And I had written about this before. I You can imagine what the response to that was, especially in Seattle. <laughs> Not among my most popular. I, I think most of, uh, most of our listeners probably know this about you. But just for those who don't, you very famously slash notoriously wrote uh, a reported piece in The Stranger about detransitioners. Uh, and so that sort of started your tenure as a pariah of the queer community. Is that mm-hmm. fair to say? Yeah. Yeah. Okay. So this was after. What year was that? That was in 2017. And so okay. I wrote this piece a year or two after that. Um, And I wrote this piece when I was in a very lucky position at The Stranger. So for about a year and a half, maybe two years while I was on staff there, I didn't have a dedicated editor and I didn't really have an editor at all. So I wouldn't pitch things. I would just write whatever. I wouldn't even tell anybody what I was working on. We had a Slack channel and I would write my piece, my like daily essay or whatever I was working on. And I would, you know, put the link in the Slack channel and a copy editor would give it a once over and put it online. But there was no discussion beforehand about what I was writing. And I love that. I mean, that was incredibly uncommon. It's not a good way to run your, to run, to run your, your publication at all. But of course, I loved it. Um, And then at one point, not that long ago, uh, in I think in early 2020, maybe late 2019, that changed and I was given a dedicated editor. And so I started having to pitch. And um, as you can imagine, once I started having to actually pitch and run my ideas by by an editor, uh, a lot more of them got, (laughs) got killed. So let's go back and I want to try to figure out like how this has arisen for you just in terms of your own community, your, your, your lived experience, Katie, and your, your community. I mean, you talk and you, you open the piece by talking about how you, I guess your wife read some statistic that there are hardly any lesbian bars left. Um, And that was kind of your, your way into starting to think about this, but like, okay, let's go back. You grew up in the eighties in the 90s, mm-hmm. I would assume. Yeah. And so you were like what would have been called a, a tomboy. Yes. Um, and you, you just sort of, but you always saw yourself as a girl or did you have a sort of non-binary sensibility? Well, I, I mean, the, the term, of course, didn't exist back then. But I was, I think about this a lot. I think that if I had been the exact same person born 15 or 20 years later, I think that I would have been diagnosed and pathologized by other people as either non-binary or trans because I was a I was a real tomboy. Like I think a lot of people fake being a tomboy at this like they like they have this revisionist history where they <laughs> they go back. Yeah, and I know. Right, no. right. I, I I I never I would never lay claim to that because I was yeah. really bad at sports. I yeah. just I yeah. just didn't like to wear frilly things, but I don't right. think that's enough. Well, so I was the kind of tomboy. Who, like, I was the only girl on my little league team. I looked like a boy, so I was regularly mistaken for a boy to the point where, which is, it's embarrassing when it happens. You know, I know a lot about being misgendered because I've been misgendered for my entire life. I'm still, as an adult today, oftentimes, this always happens in airports for some reason. People refer to me as sir. Um and when I'm with my wife, they sometimes think that I'm her son, which she, of course, loves. Um, but men are allowed to sit in first class, so it's probably <laughs> yeah, it's, it's better. It's, it's one of the secrets of the patriarchy. Yeah, I, I immediately you're more likely to be upgraded to first yeah, class. Yeah, and I make I make thirty percent more every time every time somebody calls me. So. Yeah. Um. So, uh, I was the I was the type of little girl who everybody thought was a boy. 
And while this was, it was like humiliating if I was with my my family and someone would call me young manish or whatever, because then my parents would have to correct them and there would be this, awkward, you know, just awkward. But if I were alone and that happened, I would go with it. And I would, I even, I would tell, if somebody asked me my name and there was nobody there to correct them, I would say that my name was Kyle because it was easier for me to pretend to be a boy than to correct somebody um, because it's, you know, it's just an embarrassing thing to have somebody to say to some, no, I'm actually a girl. But, and I did, I look like a boy. I can, I understand why people thought I was a boy. Cause I, I dressed like one. I had short hair. I, I did, you know, sort of quintessential boy things um, when I was a little bit older. So when I was an adolescent, I was a whitewater kayaker and this was the, the biggest thing in my life. I was very serious about it. I left high school early so I could train full time. I went all over the country, uh, kayaking. And I, so I was competitive. I was sponsored by a bunch of different brands. Wow. And when I was 16, I went on a, I think it was six weeks. I spent six weeks in a van, a 15 passenger van with all males. I think our coach was like in his mid twenties and everybody else was a teenager or a preteen, all boys. And I was the only, literally the only woman under the age of 18 who was a professional freestyle kayaker. And so I got lots of attention for that, of course, but I was also all, like always around men. I mean, my, my life was just, there were very few women around me. There were some pro women kayakers, but for the most part, like I was always around men. I was a tomboy, you know? And I think today, if I had given what has happened in the culture, I think if I had lived exactly as I did as a child, I think that, that if somebody would I probably would have gotten online and I would have said, you know, I'm not like other girls. Something's mm -hmm. different about me. Get on YouTube. And I I think there's a very high likelihood that I would identify as trans or non-binary. And I've thought a lot about whether that was because that's because I've I had a I rejected gender roles, or if it's because I had actual gender dysphoria, you know, mm -hmm. where I had a deep discomfort in my body. And I think it was really a little of both. I think when I was younger. I was uncomfortable with gender roles and I had an older brother who was very cool and I wanted to be like my brother. And I, I think that's an element that is often overlooked when we talk about children and gender is that little kids mimic the people around them. And if you're a little boy and you have sisters and your sisters really love purple tutus, you might love a purple tutu. And that doesn't mean that you're a girl. It means that you don't, that you like the shit that your siblings like, right? It's uh, like, it's a very yeah. natural thing. But I did, when I reached puberty, I did have a very visceral discomfort with my body. That's also not un uncommon, right? Lots of girls have, like, you don't want to get boobs. You don't want to start your period. Like, it's this... It's just a very uncomfortable time to be a human being, to have a body. Yes. I think, however, so I think that what I went through was, was incredibly normal, especially for people who would grow up to be lesbians. But if I were born in the year 2000, I think that would have been pathologized. And I think it's totally possible that I could be right now talking to you with like a gravelly testosterone voice, although I wouldn't be talking to you. <laughs> That's right. You would you would hate me, I suppose. <clears throat> yes, probably. What? I so, yeah, I mean, I think part of the reason that I find this so fascinating is that for me, even though I'm straight, like a lot of my identity as a woman has kind of, uh, it's it's been dependent on having a very wide canvas to work with, like a, a, a very wide lane, a wide bandwidth. Like, yeah. you know, I'm not, I'm, I'm not a tomboy, but I was never a girly girl. And I think I was pretty 
comfortable sort of finding a niche for myself sort of aesthetically or temperamentally or I just I, I never doubted that I was a woman but I was I was and am a particular kind of woman that seems to me very clearly female like right. there's no doubt about it so I find it really interesting that suddenly this way of being is not seen as female. Right. And I guess like, you know, so then, you know, we started talking about this from a sort of feminist perspective, like, well, as a woman, I resent this. And I think this, that there's a sort of implicit, you know, internalized or unconscious misogyny here. And then that sort of drifts into the whole turf discussion. So turf is a trans exclusionary radical feminist, which is a real slur that gets put on to uh, women who are sort of critiquing this or making observations from a from a feminist perspective. Is that uh, accurate? Yeah. Although you don't even have to be a feminist to be a turf at this point. Yeah, that's it's true. just become right. a, you know, right. it, you can be a Jewish Nazi at this point. I mean, it's just one of those words that has just become, you know, people throw right. it around, you know, or, or gender critical, I suppose. Right. Yeah. Uh, so, so yeah. So I guess, you know, you talk about how it was cool to be a lesbian, like in the early aughts. I mean, I remember it was cool to be a lesbian in the early nineties. Yeah. Uh, I think the cover of Time magazine had like a lipstick lesbian mm -hmm. uh, story and it, there was a sort of fashion about it. And it, it also coincided with, you know, grunge and riot girl. Right. And there were right. just like a lot of cool ways to be uh, a girl and a woman. So it kind of makes me sad, although I'll get accused of being infantilizing by saying that, it, it, but it's a little sad. It's like a bummer that for some reason that's not an option that you have to go straight to, to just becoming a boy or becoming non-binary. So that's just sort of, my, I guess that's the, that's really the only skin I have in the game. I, I'm observing this, you know, in, in the abstract, but can you talk about just sort of what started happening with your friends and your community? I mean, you've talked, sure. we talked about this, I think the last time you were on the show a little bit, like, you're, like all your, your lesbian friends are just like getting top surgery and kind of turning into men? So my first inkling that something was happening was in 2012. And I, I was living in, in, a, in Charlotte, North Carolina. And I, I lived there for a year. And I had one really close friend there. And he was a trans guy. And he had lived in a really small town in North Carolina with, uh, it was either four, I think he was one of five lesbians. He, he transitioned while he lived in this household. And within, so it was five lesbians. And within a year of him transitioning, all of them had transitioned. And he told me that. And it was just blew my mind because statistically that's, that's an impossibility, right? Yeah. That yeah. you just have, you have like trans people are what, like 0.06% of the population. And then in this small town, a town with not very many lesbians, with not that many out, out gay people at all, you have all of these people at the same time, all transition. And I thought that was very remarkable. I also thought it was an anomaly. Eight years later, I cannot tell you the number of lesbians, of queer women, of former females who have now transitioned. And I'm not just talking about people in their 20s. I'm talking about people in their 30s and 40s. Um, it is so common that I would get, I would say that at this point, not a month goes by when I don't find out that another one of my former lesbian or dyke or former female homosexual female friends has transitioned or come out as non-binary. I'm talking in the dozens, well, well into the dozens of people who have, who have made this. Are you, and are you, is there like a Facebook group for this? How are you finding out? Is that mostly from, it's not on a list or mostly it's from people coming out on Instagram. 
or okay. on Facebook or whatever, or hearing it through the grapevine, um, you know, or somebody changes their name and their pronouns in their Instagram or Twitter bio or something like that. It's just, it's just incredibly common. And this is not, so I live in, I live outside Seattle now, but mostly I live most of my life in North Carolina and most of my friends are still in North Carolina. So this is not something that just happens in sort of these like coastal cities. This is also something that happens in like small towns in North Carolina. Right. Um, and I, I find it, super interesting. And I find the fact that we're not supposed to talk about it. And and the, the reaction when somebody comes out is always just this like flood of congratulations and people being proud of them and offering them, you know, kudos and likes or whatever. And no analysis for why this might be. Because it's just statistically, it is just not possible that every homosexual woman that I know is actually, you know, was quote unquote born in the wrong body. It's just an impossibility. So I think that's something else is going on here. And there's not an analogous phenomenon going on and with gay among men. gay men. No, I think that is changing. I think you are seeing lots more gay men transitioning. I have a friend who went to Sarah Lawrence and he told me that 60% of the of the men in his class of the gay men in his class in Sarah Lawrence have now transitioned to female or non-binary. Oh right. So I think that this is sort of slowly creeping into younger gay male spaces. The difference is that you don't see older gay men doing this. And the other difference is that you also don't see, like there, I read about this in the piece, but there's lots of hand-wringing over the term lesbian. The term lesbian has become sort of a bad word in, in queer circles, because if you have like a, if you have a, a lesbian dance night at a bar or whatever, that seems, people take that to, to be exclusionary. That means that non-binary people aren't allowed or trans people aren't allowed or whatever. And so when I was working on the piece, I read this story that was written in the Willamette Week, which is Portland's All Weekly in 2016. And it was about what happened after the last lesbian bar closed in Portland in, I think, 2010. And what happened is that a bunch of people tried to start lesbian nights. And then there would be these huge firestorms, always on social media, about the term lesbian. And these people would get just so much criticism because they wanted to have a lesbian night. That does not happen with gay bars. You do not see gay bathhouses hand-wringing over whether or not you know trans men should be allowed in these spaces. I'm sure it does happen occasionally, but it's just not on the scale that it happens in women's spaces. Um, there is uh, one one interesting part of the Willamette Week piece, and I ended up uh, I ended up when I was working on my piece, I went back and I I got in touch with some of the people who were featured in the Willamette Week piece and just checked with them to see if anything had changed and it, and it hadn't. Um, but the author of that piece wrote about a, uh, a lesbian dance night. There was a night called temporary lesbian bar and they had it. This, it was, a te- it was, it was a bar for temporary. Well, it was, a, yeah, was yeah. <laughs> for lugs. It, so oh. it was, it was once a month, this, this like regular oh. bar <laughs> would turn into, a, it was just okay. a dance. The dance party was called temporary yeah. lesbian bar. And I think it All still right. is called temporary lesbian bar, um, which is actually sort of shocking. It, it, the party doesn't exist anymore because of COVID, but they had, and their their uh, their imagery for like to promote the show on flyers and on social media and stuff. And their logo, they had a labrys, which is this old. It's a double headed axe, and it's old lesbian iconography. Um, and because they used a labrys, they were accused of attempting to exterminate trans women. And so the the organizers of this bar actually apologized and you know took the labrys symbol out of their out of their promotional materials. That does not happen with gay men. Nobody's going to like see a dick on a, a flyer for a gay men's night and say that that's exclusionary. 
Right. Okay. All right. There's a lot to, uh, there's a lot to think about here. I, I'm like, I wonder sometimes if so much of the discussion around women, the, the, the conditions, the cultural conditions for women, women's safety, uh, whether or not it's like a great time to be a woman or the most terrible time in history to be a woman, if somehow this kind of collective decision, certainly like on a lot of social media spaces, that women are imperiled or that it just sucks to be a woman uh, has contributed to this idea that it would be a great uh, great idea to to be a man. I know that's like a pretty simplistic and I realize it's oversimplifying, but I wonder if you think there's anything there. It's interesting. You know, I don't think that this is a bad time to be a woman. In fact, no, I think it's the greatest I, time I in, in human pretty, history. Yeah. Pretty great. Yeah. yeah. And you, do you remember there was a couple years ago, there was some survey done of, of um, supposedly the most dangerous places to be a woman. Oh, and, yeah. I wrote about this in my right, book. Yeah. Right, uh, right. Yeah. It was like, um, right. Dangerous meaning, meaning like physical, yeah. physical violence. And it yeah. was like India, Pakistan, uh, Afghanistan. And then uh, the U.S. And, and uh, the U.S., they, they, they sort of like squeezed the U.S. in at number 10. Right, right. And their, and their whole explanation was like, well, uh, you know, given the, given the, um, you know, the influence of the Me Too movement right. and, and how important that is, it would just, um, we would, it would be a dereliction of duty if we didn't right. include the U.S. on this list. It's, it's just like, hilarious. Yeah. So you see a lot of stuff like that, which I just don't buy at all. It doesn't align with my personal experience and it doesn't align with statistics. Um, you know, or I mean, basic logic. Oh, basic logic, right? And the, the reality is, like, if you look at the progress that women have made over the past 50 years, it is immense. It is immense. I mean, my mom is in her 70s and my mom grew up thinking, literally thinking that she could be a secretary a nurse, a nun, or a teacher. That was it. There were four possible job tracks for her. She ended up being a professor because of the women's movement, right? Right. And this was she was born in the 1940s. Um, so things have just changed remarkably for the better for women. And, and on lots of metrics, women are doing much better than men. Absolutely. Um, so I, I don't think that the world is a worse place for women. I think in some places, yeah. And I think oftentimes Western feminists ignore that, um, which is really unfortunate. But for the, for Western women, it is a it is actually a good time to be a woman. So that's that is one of the things that's so interesting about this because there is I think some feminists would argue that, especially gender critical feminists would argue that the reason that lots of young women in particular are opting out of womanhood is because it is so difficult to be a woman, and that just doesn't ring true to me at all. I think the one area where it I can see how somebody might get to that. Is, is sort of in this realm of like online pornography, the sort of a lot of the kind of values around bodies and the way that um, sort of the, the whole Instagram culture and the way sort of exaggerated versions of female sexuality have come to dominate popular culture in ways that it, it was it was less so in the past. So remember when you know J.K. Rowling had she wrote her she made her statement. Um, about I, what was this on the heels of the Harper's letter or was it before it was before the it Harper's before letter that, it was before that right and I I was sort of like you know, she she was very cogent and I thought it was very reasonable she was you know she's been obviously accused of being a huge turf because she's stood up for all female spaces and I'm like I was I was with her for about 90 percent and then she made a statement like it's never been a worse time for women I can't remember what she said verbatim but like she really suggested that 
um, it was a terrible time and that that women were under some kind of um, like, you know, thumb of oppression. And I think she was referring to this sort of like ubiquitous hypersexualization of of women um, that you did not see as much in, you know, for instance, the 70s and the 80s when she would have been coming up. I think sure. she's a little bit older than me. Um, yeah, so she, I do see that. I can I can kind of get with that. Even that though, like, I mean, when I was a kid, the, the biggest pop star in the world was Britney Spears, you know, and she was hypersexualized as a, as a young teenager. I mean, do you remember right. the baby hit me one more time? Um, and that was in the, that was in the nineties. Um, you know, I I, like clearly there was also like Winona Ryder, but, but the other thing is like when you were growing up, you weren't like pornography was not all over the place. No, it was in magazines in somebody's attic and you weren't. And like, I think that, um, some of these women who are a generation or so younger than me find themselves in sexual situations with men who have been completely like conditioned by pornographic right. images and have totally unrealistic expectations. About and they, they, what they like are do and what people right. look like. And this is, I, I know about this more. <laughs> this is not my, my personal experience at all, but you know, I, I like, I worked with Dan Savage. I listened to his podcast. I, I read his column and, uh, and he's constantly getting questions about things like choking um, things that, yeah. that I think were like considered like hardcore BDSM are now on the table in lots of like ordinary people's sexual on the menu, yes. um, you know, in, in a way that I think probably is really, really disturbing for some people, for some women and probably for some men too. I'm sure there's lots of men who don't actually want to choke people. Well, that's, I don't understand why do, do, does everyone suddenly want to do this? I don't understand. I feel like I need to find a, a choking expert. In, um, on, <laughs> yeah. you know, I don't, I don't understand this at all. I had not heard about it until the Aziz Ansari uh, case came uh-huh. along. I think that was part of, part of the complaint was that he had, he was wanting to do some sort of maneuver yes. <laughs> that is, um, that is uh, frequently seen in certain kinds of pornography anyway. So, okay. But just like in terms of it's this narrative that it's horrible to be a woman, obviously it doesn't make any sense. I will give a little bit of credence to this kind of like, look, when I was growing up, like Jodie Foster was the coolest, right. <laughs> the coolest woman celebrity. <laughs> um, and she was a woman, you know? Yeah. Uh, and so like to have that kind of role model, I think was, was important. So Anyway, okay. So, why do you think that um, these women or people who formerly identified as women uh, are like not having it anymore? I think it's trend, and that's a, a, a deeply unsatisfying answer. But I think that it is a meme in the the Richard Dawkins sense of a, a unit of cultural self replicating transmission. Um, I think that that's what's happening. I think that this has become it's become cool, and when something becomes cool women, young women in particular, are prone to, uh, you know, following their peers. And that's not to say men aren't at all. Men are as well. But we we know from, especially from looking at teenagers, like when I was a teenager, every other girl was a cutter or was bulimic and anorexic. I mean, it was just widespread. That I don't think is as much an issue anymore. But these things become... There are elements of human behavior that are incredibly contagious, and I think that's that's what's happening right now. I think that people see being non-binary or being trans as cool, um, and they jump on the bandwagon. And it's more complicated than that. I mean, there's also, you know, 
this isn't about non-binary so much, although some non-binary people do take testosterone and there's this whole trend of microdosing now where you take small amounts of testosterone. Testosterone is a performance enhancing drug, right? You, If you go online and you watch videos of trans guys who went from being, you know, dykish, which isn't a particularly attractive uh, fashion sense in most of American culture, to being these sort of cute, maybe small, but like kind of cute boys with like lots of energy and a high sex drive and their muscles get bigger and their jaw lines get stronger. And they're, and they say that their lives are better. I can see how that's appealing, especially if like, if you're, if there's something going wrong in your life or you're unhappy, this can seem like a, a quick fix. You know, like a, a sort of a magic pill. It's a magic injection that you take and your life changes. And I can absolutely see the appeal in that. Um, you know, so I don't think that we have, I don't like either there's something in the water that has made people deeply gendered dysphoric, dysphoric of their bodies in the last 20 years. And I don't think that that's true or there's something happening on a cultural level. Um, mm -hmm. You know, so I think we're in the midst of a social contagion. And I think that. We're going to look back at this time and maybe it'll take a decade. Maybe it won't take that long. And we're going to say, what the hell happened? Why is there a generation of women who had mastectomies and identified out of being women? What the hell happened? And why is trans activism uh, as vehement as it is? I mean, one of the problems, and I, I don't want to, you guys talk about this on your show a lot, and I've talked about this with, with at least one other guest. So I don't, we don't need to drill down on this too far, but like, you know, we've got these situations where parents in very good faith are trying to help their kids when they come to them and say, mom, I'm non-binary or I'm trans. Um, but then the, there's no ability to really sort of parse it because trans activism is very, very um, strident about shutting down conversations. So like, do you have any ideas what the psychology is behind the activism itself? Uh, not behind the psychology. I do have an idea about what happened with institutions. Um, so after the success of gay marriage before, okay, before gay marriage, you know, was, uh, was legalized by the Supreme court, you had every state, every town, every city had their big, had like a, you know, a big gay rights organization. And then there were these national ones too. And mostly what they worked on was marriage equality. And then when marriage equality was a success, these organizations didn't shut down. They pivoted. They said, what's the next issue? And the next issue. And a lot of these organizations like HRC, the Human Rights Campaign in particular, had for years been criticized by trans activists about not being inclusive enough. Nobody, I think at this point, would ever say that HRC is not inclusive enough of trans people. I mean, most of what they do is trans activism. Because the big issue, I mean, not that there aren't still you know, some laws on the books that are, that are discriminatory against gay people. There are, but the big issue was marriage equality and that problem was solved. And so they pivoted and they pivoted to trans activism. And so all of these groups that used to be fighting for gay equality are now, now dealing, now doing trans stuff. And lots of groups that weren't like the ACLU now does a lot of stuff on, on, you know, trans equality that in some ways butts up against other ACLU values, um, which is interesting to watch. Right. Yes. Well, that's a whole other, whole other discussion. The AC, what's happened to the ACLU. Yeah. And, and then I also think, so that happened. And then I also think that there's this, 
maybe this is, you know, the result of Trump being elected or something else, but there's this group think, uh, you know, right now it's very, it's very, if you're on the left, if you're progressive, it's very, morality is very in, right? Being a good moral person, being on the right side of history is very in. And I think that there is this among, especially among members of the media who tend to be fairly homogenous. I think there is just this idea that fighting for trans rights is the next sort of battlefield of equality, Mm -hmm. which is, you know, I got to say, like, it really shows you how far America has come in terms of equality and civil rights. Um, You know, in the, in the 1960s, the big civil rights issues was people were fighting against desegregation. And now what we're fighting for, what a lot of people are fighting for is like, you know, the ability of a middle-aged father divorced father of two to use a woman's bathroom and there's you know there's something sort of beautiful about that um but what we don't do is you know is like say look at the progress look at what we've done look at how good things are instead people tend to catastrophize yeah i know it's really and you know i've talked about this in terms of the women's movement i mean the the birth control pill was invented like 60 years ago it's it's been it's been available for such a short period of time Um, and for, that was just an absolute game changer for women. And it was like, it it was, it was like a, the blink of an eye ago and and that we have made so much progress in so little time, uh, is just to me, uh, phenomenal and, and something that should be, uh, appreciated. And I, maybe it's just like a a human nature that, you know, we don't appreciate history. So like, if you've only been on the earth for 20 years, 60 years, I I can't, I don't have off the top of my head when the birth control pill was invented. So please don't accuse me of getting that wrong. But you know, if you're 20 years old, 60 years ago feels like another century. I mean, mean, right. I mean, Roe v. Wade was what, 1979? No, it was 73. Three, 73 okay yeah yeah so um, so i was three years old i mean yeah. that was like my mother that was a huge deal yeah yeah yeah, yeah it, it, there is this this you know i think stephen pinker writes about this yeah. there is this the better things get the more we sort of focus on the small on the small issues like there are you know there are some horrific cases of like abject ab- like actual racism in the U.S., like uh, like the killing of Ahmad Arbery, that seems like a that does Absolutely. to me that seems like a lynching, right? Super fucked Absolutely. up. But mostly, what we see is microaggressions, you know. And at the same time, there are more activists focusing on these smaller and smaller issues. So you know, you have uh, probably you know fewer black people killed by no, definitely you have fewer unarmed black people killed by the police every year, but the re the reaction to these killings gets stronger and stronger and stronger. Um, and I think the same thing is true of trans issues and gay issues and, and everything else. Um, we have smaller things to fight, but for some reason the conflict over them is much more heated. I want to talk about Liza Cowan. Yeah. So uh, she, you talk about her in your, in your piece and I should say there, there was a longer version of your article um, that I read uh, that uh, for, for, variety of reasons. There was a shorter version that appeared on Andrew's uh, Substack. So I can't remember. I guess Liza was in that, was in the- She wasn't named. She wasn't named. Okay. No. So Liza Cowan is the 
the inventor or the the person who coined the future is female. Well, she right? okay. So she the, the there was a T shirt from a, a bookstore called Labrys Books that was in Greenwich Village, and the shirt had the Labrys, you know, the like double headed axe, the problematic double headed axe on the back, and on the front it said the future is female. And there were, according to Liza, there were only about ten of these shirts made um, made at the time. So she took a photo of her then girlfriend Alex Dobkin in the 1970s wearing this shirt and. And in, I think, 2015, right around uh, the time of the Clinton election, um, this, uh, this, someone- The Clinton election. Uh, I like that you call it the Clinton election. Yeah. <laughs> the failed Clinton election. Yeah. Let's just ignore the last four years. Um, so <laughs> right around the time that Hillary Clinton was running for president, this, a photo of this was uh, put on it on an Instagram account called Her Story or something like that, and it went wildly viral. And then, of course, like some feminist T-shirt company in LA made the made a T-shirt, and then now you can get it on. You can get this this phrase on everything. Liza hilariously hates it. She thinks the whole thing is just so empty, and I think she's right about that. Absolutely. Yeah. Yes. So, so she's Great. a fascinating woman. She's in her seventies now. Um, her dad, her dad was the creator of 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 uh the $64,000 question. Oh my gosh. Yeah, so he was like a I think that was on CBS. So he was like a big wig um a big wig TV producer. She was raised in 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 uh, I think like the upper east side Manhattan, very privileged. Um but she came out in the she came out in the 70s, had a really fascinating life. And uh so I talked to her for a long time for many hours, most and of course none of this made it into the piece as these things tend to go. Um about what what she sees, what she has observed as a you know as a an elder in in lesbian land over the past few decades, and she's seeing the same things that I've seen. And she has kids who are in their twenties, um, so she sees this also uh, among um, among her own children. But there, this this shedding of the lesbian identity, and she's too super concerned about it. Um, she says our history is not being told. We're here. I'm I'm here to talk, and nobody's asking us. Yeah, you quote her in the piece. She says, back then it was sort of a metaphysical puzzle. What is the future? Right. Talking about the future as female. Are we talking about a thousand years from now? Are we talking about a second from now? It gave you something to think about. Now it, that phrase, means you bought something. Yeah. When it shifted from a puzzle to a commodity, I thought, why would you want to wear something that everyone else wears? I'm, I'm not a follower. So, yeah. okay. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, and she told me about these. So she, so Alex Dobkin, her her then girlfriend, um, and they're they're still friends today. In, in typical lesbian and this fashion, this is a fantastic photograph, by the way. Yeah. it's so seventies. Like, yeah, the glasses, the hair. There's yeah. a she's wearing a the t shirt with a turtleneck underneath it, of which is uniquely seventies and lesbian. Yeah, so right. they would. So Alex was a was a musician, and she put out the first album of of like lesbian themed music, and it's on Spotify. I've listened to it quite a bit. It's it's it's. She's got some quite funny songs, um, and so they would go. They went all over the world touring, and uh, they would go to these towns and they would have a show. And then the day after the show, there would be some sort of like lesbian potluck. And they would, all these women from these towns would get together and, you know, sort of talk about their lives. And what she told me was that, and I found this really interesting. They never talked about gender. They never talked about gender identity. It, for them, it was not a concept that existed. And in fact, the concept of gender identity didn't arise in, in psychology until the 1960s. Um, the, 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 uh, term was coined by this guy, John Mooney. 
And it was used to describe people who were deeply, deeply dysphoric, you know, people who were what we at the time would have been called transsexual. Um, and the idea, I think, in the beginning was that, you know, a small group of people have basically have a mental illness that causes them this distress. And that has, that has, that concept has creeped in over the past, you know, 60 years. So that the idea now is that we all have a gender identity, almost like a soul. You know, we don't know what organ it comes from, but we all have this gender identity inside of us that tells us if we like pink or if we like blue or whatever. I don't think I have a gender identity. I think that's, I, I just like, to me, it just doesn't, it doesn't align with my lived experience, you know? Um, and I don't think that most people have gender identities, but in, you know, among this sort of, um, this group of sort of wokey young people, especially millennials and younger and, and some older people, there's this idea that we all have a gender identity and we all need to sit and meditate on our gender identity. I don't uh. think it's true. I have a sex. And how do I know what my sex is? Because I know what my body is. And I know that, that female bodies look one way and male bodies look the other way. Yeah. With, of so- course, some exceptions, but... Right. I, like, is there also a sense maybe uh, among some people who are doing this that like lesbians are just old? Like all yes. the lesbians are just like going to be these old, you know, uh, Liza Cowan is, she's in her seventies. Wait, I actually, sorry, not to like obsess about this. Her kids can't be in their twenties if she's in her, she's 70. Maybe thirties. Yeah. In their thirties. Okay. Uh, they might be in their, th- I think, I think she actually does have kids in her twenties. Okay. Well, okay. So they, yeah, they came about in some, she must've had a, uh, way. okay. Yeah. Yeah. Well, she's um, a lesbian. I mean, <laughs> these things did happen through more unorthodox ways. Right. In okay. previous years. <laughs> um, but yeah, like, it's there just a sense that it's kind of like it just just like an old kind of yeah like a bunch of like old battle axes going on olivia cruises or having potlucks right, <laughs> right. the potluck that's you know right in eating lentils oh. right uh yeah i mean so when you talk to uh these friends of yours, these people that you know who are transitioning, especially like the older ones, can you like tell me what they're saying? Like, yeah. and I'm also curious about this microdosing of testosterone. That's extraordinary. Yeah. So there's lots of different reasons that people transition, right? Some people genuinely do have uh, have gender dysphoria and they're deeply uncomfortable with their bodies and transitioning is a way of dealing with that dysphoria. I don't see anything wrong with that. If it's a medical intervention that helps some people, that's fine. But for other people, like I have a, I have a friend in her, because she's in her early thirties, and um, she had top surgery a couple years ago, or they had top surgery a few years ago. And I asked why, and they said, I wanted to look more like a rectangle. And so it's it's this purely aesthetic thing, right? I've had other friends who have told me that they got top surgery because they want to take their tops off at the beach, and to me. If you have a problem with the fact that it's socially acceptable for males to take off their tops at the beach, but not females, the solution to that problem is to change the culture and change the laws, maybe, not to cut off a part of your body. Um, there was the New York Times had a piece a couple, maybe a maybe a year ago, maybe not even that long ago. Wish I could remember what it was called, um, but had a, a first person essay by uh, somebody who I'm not sure if this person went by he or she or they, but I'll, I'll, I'll default to they in this case. And this person had top surgery and said, you know, I'm not, I'm not, I don't have gender dysphoria. This is an aesthetic choice. And I think that is 
part of it for a lot of people. It's an aesthetic choice. They like the way that it looks and their friends are doing it. Um, and so that's why they're doing it. And, you know, there's this sort of this, this sort of irony, right? Like if you go right now, if you go to a doctor and you say, I want a double mastectomy, um, they're not going to give it to you unless you say I'm trans or unless you say I, you know, I have dysphoria. So you have, like, I have a friend who had large breasts, was uncomfortable with their breast, and wanted to get, would have gotten a, a reduction. Um, but instead it was, it, that was going to like cost a certain amount of money. So instead my friend went to a doctor and said, I have gender dysphoria and got basically got a free double mastectomy. Um, you know, it was covered by insurance because it was covered by insurance. And did, did this person, would they have just preferred to have smaller breasts? Like, I think they could have gone either way. I think they would have been fine with smaller breasts and, but also, but you know, they weren't having the sort of like physical back problems that would have made a, or whatever it was that would have made an insurance company cover, cover a breast reduction. Um, so it, there was this other way around it. You know, you say I'm trans and all right, here's a letter and your insurance will cover it. Uh, can you uh, talk about some of the letters that you received from younger people? There was one that you cited in the piece um, from, I can't remember how old the, the woman was writing the letter, but it was she was saying something like, I've heard that lesbians exist, but yeah. uh, they, she was sort of regarding them as some kind of um, you know rare coin or yeah. something. Yeah, I'll, I'll read this to you. All right, this is a 21-year-old student at the University of Washington. Lesbians are pretty thin on the ground for Gen Z. I have one other lesbian friend, and together we have collected reports of five other lesbians between the U.S. and Canada, of which three of three of which three are in our generation. I do not know how things may be, have been in the old the olden times for the elder gays, so I admit that a paucity of lesbian friends may in fact be normal for twenty-something gay men in left coast liberal cities. But I like to imagine that there was some Arcadian past where short-haired women and Carhartts would gather in groups of greater than two. I have also heard legends of femme lesbians but as yet have never encountered one. So this is a 21-year-old in Seattle. And it's not like this person's friends are straight. In fact, they're not straight. What her friends are is queer or non-binary or trans. Um, and so it's just that it like, so I'm 37. So I graduated from college in 2005. So in 15 years, we went from, in my class, half the class is lesbians, you know, of course, most of them aged out of it, to in her class, nobody's a lesbian. Wow. And like, yeah, and this is Seattle. This is a city where it's incredibly easy to be to be gay or to be queer or whatever. Did you hear from other people? Similar oh, stories? I heard I heard so many. I I got so many emails. Um I I ended up so a lot of this stuff ended up in the longer piece that wasn't published by Andrew. I interviewed another woman who had identified as trans um in her in her 20s. She and her girlfriend were both identified as trans guys, and they were sort of um, they they were very online. They ran a, a popular blog for, or a Tumblr for for trans guys, and you know that had had a little bit of notoriety online as this this like cute trans guy couple. Um, and I talked to her for a while, and she had a really interesting story, sort of a, a heartbreaking story. She had been abused as a child. She had been uh, the victim of of incest. Um, and she had lots of trauma over that. She had lots of trauma over her body. And she, she, you know, she got together with this other, this other, other woman. They both ended up transitioning. Her girlfriend did a physical transition. She was doing a social transition. And right before she started, she was scheduled to take testosterone. And right before she started, her girlfriend, who she's still with, started reading 
detransitioners online and watching detransitioners videos. And she said, like, let's just pause this for a little while. And so they got into that culture, right? And so uh, you, you could argue that one is a social contagion and, the, and like that transitioning is a social contagion, but detransitioning is also a social contagion. I think you could make that argument as well. Mm. But we had this, this interesting conversation where she told me, you know, puberty was incredibly difficult for her in part because of this trauma, but also in part because puberty is difficult for people. And she said, I realize now that being uncomfortable with my body didn't make me not a woman. It just made me a teenager. And I think wow. she's, she, you know, I think like it's a simple thing, but it's also sort of this like profound observation about, about what it is to be a young person. It is uncomfortable when your body starts changing. It, it, it's like your body is forcing you to not be a kid when you still want to be a kid. Right. Um, and some people are going to, going to be so uncomfortable with that, that they, that they, that they opt out of it. Um, but the thing is like, you can't really opt out of it forever. And there are consequences to, to opting out of it, you know, physically, emotionally, psychologically. What did you think when you heard that Ellen Page was transitioning? Oh, I thought it was totally unsurprising. Totally unsurprising. And so she she announced or I'm sorry, he announced that that he was transitioning a few like a week, I think, after the piece came out. So I was glad it happened afterwards um, and not before. So nobody Wait, could. Oh, your oh, after your piece, after came my out. piece came out, okay. you know, I think I I was like texting with a, a few people about it, and I said like, who's going to be next, you know? And I have I have some ideas in my head about, <laughs> about who will, who will be the next celebrity lesbian to come out. Oh, um, yeah, I won't repeat them, but I'll really? I'll, I'll tell I you can't... offline. I'll tell you oh, offline. Oh no, yeah. okay. That's if we can place bets. That's right. Like there okay. should be bets on this. So it's totally unsurprising, you know. I mean. I, I'm curious about what this will do to Elliot's uh, career. Elliot is, is now that her name. Is that is it Jude Elliot? Wait, am I? It's it's Elliot. Elliot. But isn't yeah. there a Jude in there? Maybe it's Elliot Jude Page. It could be that Elliot Jude Juno Page. But now, so Elliot's oh, going to yeah. be a, Elliot's five foot one. So Elliot is going to be a five foot one man. <laughs> I, and I'm curious that's, about that's what I read. Yeah. I'm curious about what sort of roles will be available for Elliot right. as a five foot one right. man in Hollywood. Uh, yeah. I mean, it reminds me of like, I think it was Fran Lebowitz said that, that I'm, I'm getting a dead name here, but who cares? That Bruce Jenner was the only, the only person on earth who aspired to become a 60 year old woman. <laughs> <laughs> so it's sort of like this is the only person on earth who would aspire to become a five foot one man, right? Although, although not though. I mean, that's the thing is there's lots of five foot one men now, and so this okay. So this that is like the proliferation of of transitioning has sort of changed the way that I look at at humans who are either like small men or large women, and this is totally unfair. But if I see a like a tiny man. My first thought is he's he might be trans. If I see a large woman, my first thought is she might be trans. This is unfair. This is totally unfair. Mm -hmm. this is, I, I can blame my my unconscious brain on this rather than my 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 conscious desire to have these thoughts. And, or when I see, you know, when I see people who look like me, when I see people who look like dykes walking down the street, I no longer have the assumption that oh, there's there's one of my people, there's a fellow dyke. My assumption is now I don't know if that person's a man or a woman. I don't know how that person identifies. And I get so this is this is something that really bothers me. Within some queer communities, the default pronoun for everybody is they. 
or not for everybody for the default pe- for the default for people who are androgynous is they so i get they'd by people in my own community people i know people who know that my name is katie and i'm a biological female and i'm a lesbian i get called they by the by my own friends all the time this never happens to my wife why because she's femme and that really bothers me because people look at me like i want to live in a world where people look at me and they don't see they don't say, oh, because she's wearing pants, she must not be a woman. I want to live in a world where people say, oh, women can wear whatever the fuck they want. But we don't. We live in, there's this like narrowing of what of what is acceptable for women. And, and I find everything we fought for I know, in the, I know. In the 70s. Like, so, where's, where's free to be you and me? Right. Where's and Marlo Thomas? And it's like, under the name of progress of equality this is not progress it's not progress at all and i feel like i am like beating my head against the wall trying to explain this to people and the response when i try to explain this to people is mostly just to call me a bigot yeah i don't like you mentioned in your piece like people like eileen miles judith butler judith butler are, uh kimberly pierce now non but right kimberly pierce who directed Oh, Boys. I didn't know that. Kimberly yeah. Kimberly Pierce is non-binary now. Uh, who yeah, directed Boys Don't Cry. Well, and it was interesting because she, back when she was she, used to talk about, I mean, that was, when did that movie come out? In the 90s, in the 90s? I think. Okay, yeah. so that was a story of Brandon Tina. It was, um, or Tina Brandon, Tina Brandon, who became Brandon Tina. Um, it was a Hilary Swank film. It was a true story of a, of a trans uh, man uh, who was, brutally murdered in nebraska um she made a really really excellent uh, film about it called boys don't cry which i mean did it win the academy award i can't remember I th- like, yeah i think it did did hillary what so i mean it was it was yeah. extremely well received um and then you know cut to like a, a couple of decades not even maybe one decade later kimberly pierce can't even show that film on college campuses because right. um, the the criticism is that she cast a cis right. uh, actress to play this trans character. Um, like there were any other was, options in the nineties. This is right. Just- well, that's the other thing is like, you know, if you want to get a movie made, you need to have a, a, star. a star, you need to have a list actors in them. And until there are, uh, you know, trans or non-binary A-list actors. Good luck getting your film made. But they should okay. go back and remake the movie with Elliot Page now. Well, maybe that's that's her. That was the, her long game. Yeah, she or, uh, that was they, that he, was they, there. That was Elliot Page's. Yeah, Elliot Page. Game. There was that uh, Robin Tug that that Scarlett Johansson was going to be in that film that got canceled because Scarlett right. Johansson is a trans guy. Maybe maybe this Elliot can play the guy from Robin Tug. But what is like? And I mean, Camille Paglia, who I adore mm-hmm. apparently identifies as transgender now i think i think that case is a little bit different or she just sort of fucking with us i think she's being a little bit difficult she also doesn't i think she still goes by she i think that right. i don't think that she it's interesting because she's a critic of of queer ideology but also says that she's transgender i think that her case is a little bit different but yeah eileen miles masha gessen judith butler kimberly pierce all of these formerly powerful and admirable lesbians are no longer lesbians. And I asked Masha Gessen to comment on my piece and they wouldn't do it, which I was oh, really? disappointed. Yeah. I was disappointed in because I, I thought, you know, I, like I'm a great admirer of Masha Gessen. Yeah. I think, I think that Masha I think, Gessen, yeah, they have yeah. a lot of intellectual integrity. Right. Sure. I think that Masha Gessen might be able to explain this to me in a way that makes sense. And uh, they declined. Hmm. Yeah. 
Um, okay. So is there anything else we need to cover? I mean, I know this, again, this is, this is the uh, most pressing urgent subject it at is. the moment. So we could talk about it for days, weeks, months, but is there anything? Let me, your time? let me think for a second. Um, no, I, you know, we're going to be seeing, I think more of this. And then I think that it's going to end. I think that this is a trend. I think that like most moral panics, there will become there will be an endpoint. I'm not sure about that. Maybe this is just the way things are going to be from now on. But there is this, you know. I thought the first the first non-binary person I met was in I think 2010 was a friend who went by they, and I thought, you know, I didn't have I I call people whatever they want. I don't have a problem with that. But I didn't think, you know, 10 years later, this is going to be something that is so pervasive in the culture. I thought it was going to be a sort of niche queer thing. And that is not true. Um, this is really everywhere. And that's been interesting to observe. Um, so we'll see what happens. Well, Katie, thank you for coming back on the show. And thank you for writing this piece and for sharing your thoughts. It's always really uh, exhilarating to, to talk with you. Oh, thanks for having me. It's always good to talk to you as well. That was my interview with Katie Herzog. Katie is the co-host with Jesse Single of the Blocked and Reported podcast. She is a former writer for Seattle's alt-weekly newspaper, The Stranger. She is also the author of a Substack newsletter that chronicles her investigation into the ethics and health implications of dog spaying and neutering. We talk about this subject in an extended version of this interview, which you can find on this podcast's Patreon page at patreon.com slash the unspeakable. You can also find there a longer version of Where Have All the Lesbians Gone, the article we discussed in the conversation you just heard, and that appeared in shorter form in Andrew Sullivan's newsletter. Katie's newsletter, Moose Nuggets, can be found at moosenuggets.substack.com. That's moose as in the animal and nuggets as in nuggets, not moose like the food or nugget like the candy. Although I guess you could have moose nugget, moose nugget. Anyway, you've been listening to the Unspeakable Podcast. For more information about the show, you can visit theunspeakablepodcast.com. You can also subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, and Google Podcasts. I do not have a newsletter. Thanks for listening. See you next time. Hi, I'm Frank. I don't like change. And I just saw a billboard for this new BJ's Wholesale Club talking about how you could pay as little as two cents a gallon for gas. Look, when gas prices are this low, we can't complain about gas prices being too high. No, sir. I wouldn't join BJ's Wholesale Club. Hey, thanks, Frank. But if you do want to sign up now to get a $40 BJ's digital gift card, join the new BJ's Wholesale Club, opening soon in South Fayette. Visit BJ's.com slash South Fayette or the BJ's Membership Center at Newbury Market. Offer valid for a limited time. Are you in excruciating pain brought on by your son, daughter, or spouse suffering from addiction? The sleepless nights, the constant worry, and the feelings of isolation. Recovery Centers of America wants you to know. 
you're not alone. Addiction destroys families. But if you call Recovery Centers of America today at 1-888-RECOVERY, your loved one can begin to recover. And so can your whole family. At Recovery Centers of America at Monroeville, your loved one will be treated with compassion and dignity by expert addiction professionals while recovering in a world-class facility. Family Support Services will give you knowledge, connection, and community so that you can begin to heal and recover as well. Call 1-888-RECOVERY today. Recovery Centers of America accepts insurance, provides transportation, and offers intervention services at no cost. Patients are admitted 24 hours a day, 7 days a week. Call 1-888-RECOVERY now.